seated. Certainly, we've all had opportunities to observe couples that have been married for a long time at some point. Uh, maybe you've had the chance to watch a couple when they were having a meal together in a restaurant. It could be that they sat there with hardly saying a word to one another. And in some cases, when you see that, you suspect there is a problem here. You watch, and they scarcely look in the direction of the other person. Maybe one of them is reading a paper the whole time, and the other is just looking around the restaurant. The movements of their hands as they cut their food and then lift it to their mouth is just kind of listless. They're simply going through the motions. They need to eat, so they're doing it. And you wonder as you watch them, have they even spoken to each other in years? You can imagine them going home and the husband plopping into the recliner and turning on the TV and the wife going into another room where she plops into her chair and turns on her TV and, and that's it. These are two people simply living side by side. But by contrast... You see other couples that you watch and you marvel at the deep love that's on display. Even though they, they never say a word, they don't need to. Yet, throughout the, you, you watch throughout the meal, they're, they're constantly interacting with one another. The, the husband sees something amusing on the other side of the restaurant and he, he gives a little gesture with his, his eyes and his wife looks over and smiles. You know that they've communicated completely what, what they're thinking. You, you watch, and, and the wife passes the husband the salt, and as she does so, her hand just kind of lingers on his for a second. As soon as they're done eating, they, they reach across, and they, they hold each other's hand while they're drinking coffee. It, it's clear that the reason they're not speaking is because they no longer need words to communicate. Their, their love is obvious and is deep. Now, I hope that, that we all instinctively suspect that the second scenario it is more closely what aligns to the ideal Christian marriage than the first. I think we all understand that God expects our love to deepen as we go through life together. Yet, for those of us who are married, how closely does our marriage align with the direction, at least that we're headed to that couple that no longer needs words to communicate their love for one another? For those of you who are unmarried, think about the marriages in, in our church, of, of your friends and your families that are around you, our fellow church members. How, how closely do their marriages align with the ideal marriage of Scripture? And then ask yourself, what responsibility do you have to stimulate them toward love and good deeds, as Ephesians 10.24 says, in the area of their marriage? After this morning, we will only have one more passage remaining in the, the short series that we're going here through the Song of Solomon. Uh, I will be away next week on vacation, so that final sermon will have to wait a, a, another week. But we're nearly finished with this beautiful poetic book that, that God has given us. Uh, I am planning, in case you're wondering, a series through Colossians next. That's where we'll go after Song of Solomon. We've been looking now at Song Solomon for, for several weeks, uh, and we see that God has given us here a guide to all the key areas of marriage, areas of romance, areas of intimacy. God has not left us without instruction in these 
powerful relationships that really are at the center of our humanity. We, we've seen the, the joy that, that romance and marriage can bring. We, we've seen the importance of, of purity before marriage. We, we've seen the, the bliss of marriage that culminates in the intimacy of the wedding night. We've even seen the reality of sin causing marriages to have conflicts and the pain that comes along. Throughout the series, we, we've been reminded that God has designed the, this closest of human relationships to, to illustrate the, the fullness of the relationship that he's restoring be, between himself and us through Christ. Marriage is to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. So whether we're married or not, we all have a lot to learn from this book. As you know by now, the, the song is essentially love poetry set to music. It is like a choral arrangement. It gives voice to emotional ideas around love and romance. There, there are three parts. The, the beloved, the, the female soloist who sings the, the part of our young bride. The, the lover of the male solo voice, he sings her young husband. And then we have the third voice, a, a chorus of friends of the beloved. They, they add a third perspective from time to time. There is no story development in the song, but, but there certainly is a progression of ideas. We, we've heard the song begin as the young couple sings of their, their early love and, and as they struggle to maintain their sexual purity throughout their courtship. We heard those songs. They, we've heard them sing of the wedding night, or the wedding and the night, including that. They, and then they sang about the conflict that, that came within marriage at some point after the wedding. We're, we're loosely tracing their lives through the, these series of songs that have been arranged into this book to follow this progression of marriage. From, from early courtship all the way through marriage to, to its fullness. Uh, on the wedding night, we were ushered into the special intimacy that, that God has given husbands and wives to enjoy. Our, our man and wife clearly enjoyed one another physically. Yet we've observed that, that intimacy, that, that, that sexual experience, we observed that through the veil of poetic imagery. There, there was nothing vulgar about it. It was only beautiful. That this morning... Our couple will sing a, another song celebrating the intimacy that, that God gives them as husband and wife. Uh, aside from the fact that they're married, we, we have no indication when this song is sung within their life. They're, they're clearly married. That's all we know. I will suggest, however, that, that the feeling of the song, as you spend time studying the song, hearing the poetry, that the feeling reflects that this likely comes years after marriage. Several years of marriage have, have transpired by this point. They are clearly comfortable with one another. But that does not mean that in any sense, this husband and wife are bored with each other. In fact, as we'll see, quite the opposite remains the case. Our song this morning be begins in chapter 7 with the husband's praise. The husband's praise. Let's look at the first six verses of chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. 
Your belly is like a heap of wheat, fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon, by the gates of Bath-Rabin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Men, let me speak to you first of all. This is the husband speaking, so let me speak to you. The, the wedding night should not be the last night that our wife knows that we find her attractive. The husband here, he sings to his wife of his attraction once more. The, the details do, do not have quite the same intensity. If you compare the details here of chapter 7 to the details of chapter 4 of the, uh, the wedding night, the details do not have quite the same intensity that he had on the wedding night. But there's no doubt that our lover continues to find his wife most attractive. In chapter 4, the, the husband sang to his wife as he began to discover her, as he removed her wedding dress, beginning with her veil, what he could see first. And, and he removed his, her veil and worked the way down. This time, he works from her feet up. He begins at her sandals and works his way up. And he assures her that, that she appears as royalty to him. Oh, prince's daughter. He, he finds her hips comely, so to her waist. And as he moves his hands and his gaze upward from her sandals to her hair, he praises her all along the way. His conclusion in, in verse 5 is that her hair alone is enough to entrap him. He can be captivated just by her tresses. There is nothing boring about her to him. He, he continues to find all of her charms, that, that's her inner graces as well as her physical attributes. He finds all of her charms beautiful and delightful. Again, there is nothing vulgar about the song. We're, we're ushered here into the arena of, of sexual intimacy, but it's done in a tactfully veiled way with poetic imagery. Again, some of the images may seem a little strange to, to us. We'd have to work our way through them to understand how they all fit in the culture of the day, but he's praising her beauty in poetic imagery. The, the point that is clearly revealed, God intends for intimacy here to continue within our marriage. He wants us to have intimacy in our marriages. Intimacy is not solely for the consummation of the marriage covenant. Intimacy is not solely for the, the, the production of, of children. Intimacy is a gift that the God gives for enjoyment throughout marriage. Man, I want to make sure we, we recognize that the song strongly suggests that ongoing intimacy within marriage begins with us. We, we must ensure that our wives know that we appreciate them. We, we admire them. We, we find them attractive. Age certainly diminishes all of us physically. That, that's the reality of living in the sinkhurst world. The, as I said on the wedding night, that is likely the most beautiful a bride will look. Yet even the rich and the famous who spend exorbitant amounts of money trying to hide the fact that age dis, d diminishes us physically, 
even they cannot reverse the progress of age. No matter how much money they, they spend, eventually they will succumb to the reality of aging. Their, their bodies may look more plastic over time, but eventually they will look old. We all know that. What her wife does not need for us to do, men, is point out the impact that time is having on her body. There, there's little doubt that, that she is not already aware. Rather, what our wife needs is for us to assure her that she is still beautiful to us. To us, she remains the prince's daughter who continues to captivate us with her charms. We need to assure our wife that we find her beautiful and delightful. Our wife needs to hear that she's precious. In the song, our husband, our our lover, he he moves on from from praising his wife to expressing his desire for her. Beginning in verse 7, we have the husband's desire. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your mouth, or fragrance of your breath be like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. The song that our lover is singing here has shifted from admiration to desire. Using poetic images, he, he states his desire to engage intimately with his wife. Yet he does that with gentleness, with words filled with appreciation. He's not taking her for granted, even as he clearly states his desire. Surely you observe that I broke off right at the beginning of verse 9. We, we, we cannot help as we're reading this to feel like the, the husband has more to say. He, he has not completed his thought. He could sing the, the next line and keep going of his desire in his song, but his wife cuts him off. His wife finishes the thought through her response In the last half of verse 9, the wife's response. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. It takes a little bit for your brain to catch up to the poetic language here, but the husband's been expressing his desire for his wife. He's used the poetic image of of wine to indicate that he desires to kiss her passionately. And she jumps in. We, we know it's her speaking from the, the reference to my beloved. That's how she likes to refer to him. She suddenly starts speaking, and, and she completes the thought that he has. She grabs hold of the same image that, that he was using to state that she is his. She blends her sense of yearning with, with his. He wants to drink her deeply, and she's, she rejoices that he does drink her deeply. Now, I'm going to take just a moment and speak practically to the married couples who are here this morning. Man, there are no guarantees that your wife will respond to words of praise like the beloved does in this verse. Just because you, you utter the magic phrases isn't going to work. Timing, timing certainly factors into these things. You, you, you cannot sit in the chair and watch your wife wash the dishes and clean the floors and fold the clothes and finally collapse exhausted and then expect that a few words of romantic praise will make up the difference. Your words need to express an attitude of love that, that reveals itself throughout all of life. At the same time, words are important. The old adage, 
I told my wife I loved her on our wedding day and I'll tell her if ever changes. That is not biblical. Not at all. That is not biblical perspective. Wives, at the same time, you need to recognize that it is right and good for you to respond to your husband's attempts to romance you. Allow yourself to enjoy the fact that that your husband delights in you. God intends for marriage to work this way. In fact, as we move on, immediately following the, the wife's response here in the song, we have the wife come up with a suggestion. In verse 10, we have the wife's suggestion. Look at that verse. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened, and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance, and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved." The word desire there in verse 10, his desire is for me, is a very strong word. It's the same word that we encounter in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 when God announces the consequences of the fall to Eve and he says that her desire will be for her husband. It's a strong consuming word. We see it again in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 when God warns Cain of, of the danger of sin saying his desire is to possess you. Our beloved is using it in an entirely different way. But that strength is still there. She's acknowledging the rightfully strong desire that her husband has for her while affirming that, that she is totally committed to him. This is desire as God intends it, not as sin has corrupted it. In response to her complete commitment to her husband, in response to his desire for her and her desire for him. In response to that, in, in verses 11 through 13, our wife suggests that the two of them go away for a romantic getaway. We would call it a weekend away. She suggests they go off to the country where they can be alone. She, she wants to have a, a time of passionate isolation with her husband. And she takes the initiative in suggesting it. Again, it's tastefully veiled with poetic imagery. Yet there's no doubt that that she is suggesting a time of intimacy for the two of them. She states directly that, that, will, that she will give him her love. She references the fragrance of mandrakes, which is considered an aphrodisiac in that day. She assures him that she saved up both new and old treats for her husband. In other words, she has a few surprising pleasures left. Moving on. In the first three chapter 8, the, the wife continues singing as we hear the, the wife's wish. Verses 1 through 3. Oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. 
Now, these verses at first may seem strange. They, they may feel like they, they don't fit in with the passion that, that we've been hearing up to this point, that, that suddenly we've shifted gear. After all, why does a wife who wants an intimate getaway with her, her husband suddenly sing that she wishes he were her brother? Now, that sounds decidedly unromantic to us, doesn't it? Actually, the, the wife is making another very strong romantic statement. But she's doing it within the culture of her day, a culture that is very different from our day. In her day, a husband and wife would never demonstrate affection toward one another in public. Her day was very different when it came to highly demonstrative displays of affection. There was no PDA at all in their culture between husbands and wives. The only people who would show any sort of affection at all in, in public was, were family members. A husband, family members as in brothers and sisters, mothers to children. Not even a husband and wife would display public affection to one another. A kiss in public would be considered too sexualized for public display. That was to be done within the privacy of the home, in, in married seclusion. So what the beloved is saying is she wishes that she could display her affection for her husband immediately. That she did not have to wait she wishes that she could seek, didn't have to seek this seclusion of a weekend getaway in the countryside, or she didn't have to wait until they were alone at home. She wishes that she could just show him her love openly. But since she cannot, she will lead him to a place of privacy. She yearns for his embrace. Wives, up till now, the most pointed applications have been directed to us husbands regarding maintaining intimacy within our marriage. It's clear, though, from these later sections that the God expects you as wives to also put efforts into keeping intimacy alive in your marriage. The, the model that, that we're given here, the example that we have here in the song, shows that it is fitting for you to initiate intimate times with your husband. The, the implication is that, that wives, you should be putting thought into ensuring that familiar pleasures are enjoyed as well as new pleasures are discovered. You should assure your husband that, that you seek time alone with him. You, you should even arrange for, for this to occur so that the opportunity for intimacy doesn't escape. Make plans. Plan intimacy into your lives. God does not intend for our marriages to become stale and repetitive. And it really is a joint effort between husbands and wives to keep that from happening. As we close out this section of the song, we'll consider this what what we're part we're going to consider this morning because really this song of poetry, this this time of marital intimacy, draws to a close. As it does, though, the beloved suddenly turns to this chorus of friends. As we've said, we can envision this as being a, a choral production with husband, a, a man, and a, sol, and, and a woman soloing these parts, and then they turn to this chorus. And she sings a final verse. She sings her admonition to them once more. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. Notice, as I've done other times, I skip over the my. I don't think that addition of my in the New American Standard is right. Do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. 
By now, this is a somewhat familiar admonition in the song. We, we've heard the beloved share this advice before. When she was first recognizing how intense desire was when she was developing her early love for, for her, not even fiancé at that point, but as, as it was developing during the courtship, she, she advised her friends not to allow love to develop too soon, to, to, to pace it so that it would not develop until there was proper outlet for a sexual desire. As her marriage approached, as she came right up to the wedding day, she repeated this admonition. She, she recognized that, that the great yearning that she had at this point for her husband to be was, was nearly unbearable, and she warned her friends not to let that yearning develop before the time for it to find its rightful culmination in marriage was arriving. Once more, her yearning for sexual intimacy has reached its peak. She's a married woman. All she needs to do is find time alone with her husband to enjoy the gift of intimacy that God has given. Yet at the same time, her yearning causes her again to pass along this timely warning to her friends. She does not want her friends to squander the strongest affection they can have, the, the most intimate of desires, when the chance to fulfill them fully as God designed them is unavailable. Love as she has experienced it and as she anticipates experiencing again, love is so precious that as one commentator expressed it, there can be no shadows or constraints around it. And the only way that, that love can be experienced without shadows or constraint is for it not to be aroused until it can be celebrated in the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant is the only context that allows for the removal of all restraints upon this explosive power of sexual desire. So allow me to caution all of us, particularly unmarried people here, but, but all of us need to hear this, married people as well. We need to hear the inspired voice of our beloved as she shares this admonition. Sexual desire is powerful. Yet despite what our culture claims... Acting on that desire outside the context of marriage can only yield to a corrupt shadow of the joy that God intends. In the fullest form that God has given us to show our commitment to one another, we cannot do that without a covenant relationship of commitment. God's designed intimacy to be the, the ultimate culmination of commitment. It's the fullest giving of oneself within a covenant relationship. Yet if we try to take that outside the covenant relationship, as our culture says, that, that we can have sex anywhere we want it, it's all about us, that's what it becomes. It becomes all about us. It takes and twists it completely. When we take out the covenant, the act is twisted into a sinful pursuit of taking pleasure for oneself instead of giving to others, to another. We all need to reject the lie of our sex without restraint culture. And we need to heed the song here to preserve intimacy for the marriage covenant alone. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. We've looked at the song again this morning as both the husband and the wife have sung of their ongoing desire for one another. We, we've learned that intimacy should continue throughout marriage. 
None of us who are married should become the, the kind of husband and wife that can share a meal without saying a word because we simply live alongside each other. Rather, we should work toward becoming the, the kind of husband and wife that so deeply communicate our love for one another that words are no longer even necessary. Our love for each other can find communication through looks and touches that communicate our desire for each other. This morning, the, the song has instructed us on how we can work toward that sort of love, how we can keep intimacy going in our marriage. Both us husbands and, and our wives are responsible. It's a joint effort. At the same time, as we conclude this morning, I all want to remind us that just as we saw the, the bride and the groom enjoy the intimacy on the wedding night, we were reminded that the God intends for the intimacy of marriage to point toward the full joy of our salvation. That applies again. The lesson that, that we can take from this section applies broader than just the intimacy of marriage because marriage at its ideal is an illustration of Christ's love for the church. So the lesson that we can take from the song goes beyond the immediate application of husbands and wives and applies to all of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, whether we're married or unmarried. The, the way I would word the broader lesson that, that we can take with us this morning is God intends for covenant relationships to produce ongoing intimacy and joy. God intends for covenant relationships to produce intimacy, ongoing intimacy and joy. This is true of the covenant of marriage, but it's also true of the covenant relationship that we all have with God through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, if we have that faith in Christ. God intends for covenant relationships to produce ongoing intimacy and joy. I've talked about the intimacy of marriage a lot this morning because that's the immediate context of our text here. Yet all of us who know Christ as Savior... We have a covenant relationship with God. Much as there should be ongoing intimacy within marriage, we should experience ongoing intimacy in our spiritual covenant as well. Certainly, the matter in which intimacy is expressed is different. It's different between the physical covenant of marriage and the spiritual covenant that we have with God. Yet, the ongoing and increasing nature of the intimacy is similar. We should yearn for more time with God as we come to know Him more. We should want to examine God more fully and fully and fully, more and more. We should want extended time when, when we can express our affection to God more and more. There is a reason that the God uses the illustration of marriage for the relationship between Christ and us. We are His bride. We are the church, his bride. It's not sexual, but there should be a, a manner in which the strength of desire that we have for intimacy increases in an ongoing fashion, bringing greater and greater joy into our lives. So let me ask all of you, do you have an ongoing, growing desire to know God better? Are you seeking time with him alone? Is God a consuming passion in your life? Now, at the church here, we're working to, to provide opportunities for all of us to continue growing in our intimacy with God. 
but it will not happen unless you make the efforts. We have classes, we have sermons, we have book club. All of these things are designed to help us know God better. We have prayer times that are designed to help us learn how to talk to God more. We have songs of the month selected that give us words to express our affections to God more fully. We have all these activities, even memory verses now that we're trying to do, that that are designed to help us produce an ongoing intimacy so that we can all experience an increased joy in God. But you probably know where I'm going. You have to participate for any of them to have any value. I can assure you that when it comes to the intimacy of the covenant relationship with God, God is doing his part. He's doing his part in the covenant relationship. Are you doing your part? Before we leave, I want to give one further challenge to the husbands and wives here. Up till this point, the the practical advice that I've given about intimacy has been given to, to how can we make our marriages better in this area of intimacy. Now I want to challenge us to make sure we see how important it is that we do so. How can our marriages illustrate the full joy of salvation with God? The, the, the joy that, that we claim that God brings, how can our marriages illustrate that if our marriages are joyless? Sure, it's, it's, it's more enjoyable to have a marriage that, that's filled with intimacy, but, but it must go beyond that as believers. We must recognize that our marriages point to God. How can our marriages point to the joy of God if there's no joy in them. More importantly than than simply finding our marriages enjoyable for us, we should seek to fill our marriages with ongoing intimacy so that they shine brightly as an illustration of the full joy that comes through salvation. We should put forth effort in our marriages so that, that our marriages show the joy with which Christ loves his bride, the church. A love that goes on forever and ever. God intends for covenant relationships to produce ongoing intimacy and joy. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word once more. Word that has pointed us to the intimacy that you've designed, that you've given as a gift for marriage. Within that, we've heard a caution as well as encouragements and challenges. So, Father, I pray that you would do a work in each of our lives, wherever we are, in relation to what we've seen in this passage. May you do a work. Father, transform us to be more like Christ. Increase our joy. Help us be more effective witnesses to the world around us. For those of us who are married, may our marriages be strengthened. May our intimacy be stronger so that we can reflect Christ more fully in our joy. For those who are unmarried, may they see your word more clearly, both in the caution to preserve intimacy for marriage, but also to challenge their friends and fellow church members where they see a need for challenge and encouragement. And Father, may we all strive to have greater intimacy with you to love you more. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.